Chapter Twenty One of the Teeth of the Tiger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Teeth of the Tiger by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter Twenty One. Lupin's Lupins. Next morning, a little before eight o'clock, Valenglay was talking in his own flat to the prefect of police and asked, "So you think as I do, my dear prefect? He'll come." "I haven't the least doubt of it, Monsieur le Président." and he will come with the same punctuality that has been shown throughout this business. He will come, for pride's sake, at the last stroke of eight. You think so? Monsieur le Président, I have been studying the man for months. As things now stand, with Florence Levasseur's life in the balance, if he has not smashed the villain whom he is hunting down, if he does not bring him back bound hand and foot, it will mean that Florence Levasseur is dead, and that he, Arsène Lupin, is dead." <laughs> whereas lupin is immortal said valenglay laughing you're right besides i agree with you entirely no one would be more astonished than i if our good friend was not here to the minute you say you were rung up from angers yesterday yes monsieur le président my men had just seen don luis perena he had gone in front of them in an aeroplane after that they telephoned to me again from le mans where they had been searching a deserted coach-house you may be sure that the search had already been made by lupin and that we shall know the results listen eight o'clock at the same moment they heard the throbbing of a motor-car it stopped outside the house and the bell rang almost immediately after orders had been given beforehand the door opened and don luis perena was shown in to valenglay and the prefect of police his arrival was certainly not unexpected for they had just been saying that they would have been surprised if he had not come Nevertheless, their attitude showed that astonishment which we all experience in the face of events that seem to pass the bounds of human possibility. "'Well?' cried the Prime Minister eagerly. "'It's done, Monsieur le Président. Have you collared the scoundrel?' "'Yes.' "'By Jove!' said Valenglay. "'You're a fine fellow.' And he went on to ask, "'An ogre, of course, an evil, undaunted brute.' no monsieur le président a cripple a degenerate responsible for his actions certainly but a man in whom the doctors will find every form of wasting illness disease of the spinal cord tuberculosis and all the rest of it and is that the man whom florence levasseur loved monsieur le président don luis violently protested florence never loved that wretch she felt sorry for him as any one would do for a fellow-creature doomed to an early death and it was out of pity that she allowed him to hope that she might marry him later, at some time in the vague future. "'Are you sure of that?' "'Yes, Monsieur le Président, of that and of a good deal more besides, for I have the proofs in my hands.' Without further preamble he continued, "'Monsieur le Président, now that the man is caught, it will be easy for the police to find out every detail of his life. But meanwhile I can sum up that monstrous life for you.' looking only at the criminal side of it, and passing briefly over three murders which have nothing to do with the story of the Mornington case. Jean Vernoc was born at Alençon, and brought up at old Monsieur Langenot's expense. He got to know the de Dessus-la-Mer couple, robbed them of their money, and before they had time to lodge a complaint against the unknown thief, took them to a barn in the village of Damigny, where in their despair, stupefied and besotted with drugs, they hanged themselves. This barn stood in a property called the Old Castle, belonging to M. Langenot, Jean Vernoc's protector, who was ill at the time. After his recovery, as he was cleaning his gun, he received a full charge of shot in the abdomen. The gun had been loaded without the old fellow's knowledge. By whom? By Jean Vernoc, who had also emptied his patron's cash-box the night before. In Paris, where he went to enjoy the little fortune which he had thus amassed, 
Jean Vernoc bought from some rogue of his acquaintance papers containing evidence of Florence Levasseur's birth and of her right to all the inheritance of the Roussel family and Victor Sauvran, papers which the friend in question had purloined from the old nurse who brought Florence over from America. By hunting around, Jean Vernoc ended by discovering first a photograph of Florence, and then Florence herself. He made himself useful to her and pretended to be devoted to her, giving up his whole life to her service. At that time he did not yet know what profit he could derive from the paper stolen from the girl or from his relations with her. Suddenly everything became different. An indiscreet word let fall by a solicitor's clerk told him of a will in Maître Le Pertuis's drawer which would be interesting to look at. He obtained a sight of it by bribing the clerk, who has since disappeared, with a thousand-franc note. The will, as it happened, was Cosmo Mornington's, and in it Cosmo Mornington bequeathed his immense wealth to the heirs of the Roussel sisters and of Victor Sauvran. Jean Vernoc saw his chance, a hundred million francs, to get hold of that sum, to obtain riches, luxury, power, and the means of buying health and strength from the world's great healers. All that he had to do was first to put away the different persons who stood between the inheritance and Florence, and then, when all the obstacles were overcome, to make Florence his wife. Jean Vernoc went to work. He had found among the papers of Hippolyte Fauville's old friend Langenot particulars relating to the Roussel family and to the discord that reigned in the Fauville household. Five persons, all told, were in his way. First, of course, Cosmo Mornington. Next, in the order of their claims, Hippolyte Fauville, his son Edmund, his wife Marie, and his cousin Gaston Sauvran. With Cosmo Mornington the thing was easy enough. Introducing himself to the American as a doctor, Jean Vernoc put poison into one of the phials which Mornington used for his hypodermic injections. But in the case of Hippolyte Fauville, whose good will he had secured through his acquaintance with old Langenot, and over whose mind he soon obtained an extraordinary influence, he had a greater difficulty to contend with. Knowing on the one hand that the engineer hated his wife, and on the other that he was stricken with a fatal disease, he took occasion, after the consultation with the specialist in London, to suggest to Fauville's terrified brain the incredible plan of suicide, of which you were subsequently able to trace the Machiavellian execution. In this way, and with a single effort, anonymously, so to speak, and without appearing in the business, without Fauville's even suspecting the action brought to bear upon him, Jean Vernoc procured the deaths of Fauville and his son, and got rid of Marie and Sauvran by the devilish expedient of causing the charge of murder of which no one could accuse him, to fall upon them. The plan succeeded. There was only one hitch at the present time, the intervention of Inspector Verot. Inspector Verot died, and there was only one danger in the future, the intervention of myself, Don Luis Perena, whose conduct Vernoc was bound to foresee, as I was the residuary legatee by the terms of Cosmo Mornington's will. This danger Vernoc tried to avert first by giving me the house on the Place du Palais Bourbon to live in, and Florence Levasseur as a secretary, and next by making four attempts to have me assassinated by Gaston Sauvran. He therefore held all the threads of the tragedy in his hands. Able to come and go as he pleased in my house, enforcing himself upon Florence, and later upon Gaston Sauvran by the strength of his will and the cunning of his character, he was within sight of the goal. When my efforts succeeded in proving the innocence of Marie Fauville and Gaston Sauvran, he did not hesitate. Marie Fauville died. Gaston Sauvran died. So everything was going well for him. The police pursued me. The police pursued Florence. No one suspected him. And the date fixed for the payment of the inheritance was at hand. This was two days ago. At that time, Jean Vernoc was in the midst of the fray. He was ill and had obtained admission to the nursing home in the Avenue des Ternes. 
From there he conducted his operations, thanks to his influence over Florence Lavassar, and to the letters addressed to the mother superior from Versailles. Acting under the superior's orders, and ignorant of the meaning of the step which she was taking, Florence went to the meeting at the prefect's office, and herself brought the documents relating to her. Meanwhile Jean Vernoc left the private hospital, and took refuge near the Ile Saint-Louis, where he awaited the result of an enterprise which, at the worst, might tell against Florence, but which did not seem able to compromise him in any case. "'You know the rest, Monsieur le Président,' said Don Luis, concluding his statement. Florence, staggered by the sudden revelation of the part which she had unconsciously taken in the matter, and especially by the terrible part played by Jean Vernoc, ran away from the nursing-home where the prefect had brought her at my request. She had but one thought, to see Jean Vernoc, demand an explanation of him, and hear what he had to say in his defence. That same evening he carried her away by motor, on the pretence of giving her proofs of his innocence. That is all, Monsieur le Président. Valenglay had listened with growing interest to this gruesome story of the most malevolent genius conceivable to the mind of man. And he heard it perhaps without too great disgust, because of the light which it threw by contrast upon the bright, easy, happy, and spontaneous genius of the man who had fought for the good cause. "'And you found them?' he asked. "'At three o'clock yesterday afternoon, Monsieur le Président. It was time. I might even say that it was too late, for Jean Vernoc began by sending me to the bottom of a well, and by crushing Florence under a block of stone. "'Oh, so you're dead, are you?' "'Yes, Monsieur le Président. But why did that villain want to do away with Florence Levasseur? Her death destroyed his indispensable scheme of matrimony.' It takes two to get married, Monsieur le Président, and Florence refused. Well, some time ago, Jean Vernoc wrote a letter leaving all that he possessed to Florence Levasseur. Florence, moved by pity for him, and not realizing the importance of what she was doing, wrote a similar letter, leaving her property to him. This letter constitutes a genuine and indisputable will in favor of Jean Vernoc. As Florence was Cosmo Mornington's legal and settled heiress by the mere fact of her presence at yesterday's meeting, with the documents proving her descent from the Roussel family, her death caused her rights to pass to her own legal and settled heir. Jean Vernoc would have come into the money without the possibility of any litigation, and as you would have been obliged to discharge him after his arrest, for lack of evidence against him, he would have led a quiet life, with fourteen murders on his conscience, I have added them up, but with a hundred million francs in his pocket. To a monster of his stamp, the one made up for the other. "'But do you possess all the proofs?' asked Valenglay eagerly. "'Here they are,' said Perenna, producing the pocket-book which he had taken out of the cripple's jacket. "'Here are letters and documents which the villain preserved, owing to a mental aberration common to all great criminals. Here, by good luck, is his correspondence with Hippolyte Fauville. Here is the original of the prospectus from which I learned that the house on the Place du Palais Bourbon was for sale. Here is a memorandum of Jean Vernoc's journeys to Alençon to intercept Fauville's letters to old Langenot.' Here is another memorandum showing that Inspector Verreau overheard a conversation between Fauville and his accomplice, that he shadowed Vernoc and robbed him of Florence Levasseur's photograph, and that Vernoc sent Fauville in pursuit of him. Here is a third memorandum, which is just a copy of the two found in the eighth volume of Shakespeare, and which proves that Jean Vernoc, to whom that set of Shakespeare belonged, knew all about Fauville's machination. Here are his correspondence with Caceres, the Peruvian attaché, and the letters denouncing myself and Sergeant Mazeroux, which he intended to send to the press. Here... But need I say more, Monsieur le Président, you have the complete evidence in your hands. The magistrates will find that all the accusations which I made yesterday, before the Prefect of Police, were strictly true. And he? cried Valenglay. The criminal? Where is he? Outside, in a motor-car. In his motor-car, rather. Have you told my men? 
asked M. de Malion anxiously. Yes, Monsieur le Préfet. Besides, the fellow is carefully tied up. Don't be alarmed. He won't escape. Well, you've foreseen every contingency, said Valenglay, and the business seems to me to be finished. But there's one problem that remains unexplained, the one perhaps that interested the public most. I mean the marks of the teeth in the apple, the teeth of the tiger, as they have been called, which were certainly Madame Fauville's teeth, innocent though she was. Monsieur le Préfet declares that you have solved this problem. Yes, Monsieur le Président, and Jean Vernoc's papers prove that I was right. Besides, the problem is quite simple. The apple was marked with Madame Fauville's teeth, but Madame Fauville never bit the apple. <laughs> come, come. Monsieur le Président, Hippolyte Fauville very nearly said as much when he mentioned this mystery in his posthumous confession. Hippolyte Fauville was a madman. Yes, but a lucid madman, and capable of reasoning with the most appalling logic. Some years ago, at Palermo, Madame Fauville had a very bad fall, hitting her mouth against the marble top of a table, with the result that a number of her teeth, in both the upper and the lower jaw, were loosened. To repair the damage, and to make the gold plate intended to strengthen the teeth, a plate which Madame Fauville wore for several months, the dentist, as usual, took an impression of her mouth. M. Fauville happened to have kept the mould, and he used it to print the marks of his wife's teeth in the cake of chocolate, shortly before his death, and in the apple on the night of his death. When this was done, he put the mould with the other things which the explosion was meant to, and did, destroy. Don Luis's explanation was followed by a silence. The thing was so simple that the Prime Minister was quite astonished. The whole tragedy, the whole charge, everything that had caused Marie's despair and death, and the death of Gaston Sauverin, all this rested on an infinitely small detail which had occurred to none of the millions and millions of people who had interested themselves so enthusiastically in the mystery of the teeth of the tiger. The teeth of the tiger! Everybody had clung stubbornly to an apparently invincible argument. As the marks on the apple and the print of Madame Fauville's teeth were identical, as no two persons in the world were able, in theory or practice, to produce the same print with their teeth, Madame Fauville must needs be guilty. Nay, more, the argument seemed so absolute that from the day on which Madame Fauville's innocence became known, the problem had remained unsolved, while no one seemed capable of conceiving the one paltry idea that it was possible to obtain the print of a tooth in another way than by a live bite of that same tooth. <laughs> "'It's like the egg of Columbus,' said Valenglay, laughing. "'It had to be thought of.' "'You are right, Monsieur le Président. People don't think of those things. Here is another instance. May I remind you that during the period when Arsène Lupin was known at the same time as Monsieur Lenormand and as Prince Paul Sernine, no one noticed that the name Paul Sernine was merely an anagram of Arsène Lupin.' Well, it's just the same today. Louis Perena also is an anagram of Arsène Lupin. The two names are composed of the same eleven letters, neither more nor less. And yet, although it was the second time, nobody thought of making that little comparison. The egg of Columbus again. It had to be thought of. Valenglay was a little surprised at the revelation. It seemed as if that devil of a man had sworn to puzzle him up to the last moment, and to bewilder him by the most unexpected sensational news and how well this last detail depicted the fellow, a queer mixture of dignity and impudence, of mischief and simplicity, of smiling chaff and disconcerting charm, a sort of hero who, while conquering kingdoms by most incredible adventures, amused himself by mixing up the letters on his name so as to catch the public napping. The interview was nearly at an end. Valenglais said to Perena, "'Monsieur, you have done wonders in this business, and ended by keeping your word and handing over the criminal. I also will keep my word.' You are free. I thank you, Monsieur le Président. But what about Sergeant Mazeroux? 
He will be released this morning. Monsieur le Préfet de Police has arranged matters so that the public do not know of the arrest of either of you. You are Don Luis Perena. There is no reason why you should not remain Don Luis Perena. And Florence Lavasseur, Monsieur le Président? Let her go before the examining magistrate of her own accord. He is bound to discharge her. Once free and acquitted of any charge or even suspicion, she will certainly be recognized as Cosmo Mornington's legal heiress, and will receive the hundred millions. She will not keep it, Monsieur le Président. How do you mean? Florence Levasseur doesn't want the money. It has been the cause of unspeakable, awful crimes. She hates the very thought of it. What, then? Cosmo Mornington's hundred millions will be wholly devoted to making roads and building schools in the south of Morocco and the northern Congo. In the Mauritanian Empire which you are giving us, said Valanglais, laughing. By Jove, it's a fine work, and I second it with all my heart. An empire with an imperial budget to keep it up with. Upon my word, Don Luis has behaved well to his country, and has handsomely paid the debts of Arsène Lupin. A month later, Don Luis Perena and Mazeroux embarked in the yacht which had brought Don Luis to France. Florence was with them. Before sailing they heard of the death of Jean Vernoc, who had managed to poison himself in spite of all the precautions taken to prevent him. On his arrival in Africa, Don Luis Perena, Sultan of Mauritania, found his old associates and accredited Mazeroux to them and to his grand dignitaries. He organized the government to follow on his abdication and precede the annexation of the new empire by France, and he had several secret interviews on the Moorish border with General Leouti, commanding the French troops, interviews in the course of which they thought out all the measures to be executed in succession so as to lend to the conquest of Morocco an appearance of facility which would otherwise be difficult to explain. The future was now assured. Soon the thin screen of rebellious tribes standing between the French and the pacified districts would fall to pieces, revealing an orderly empire, provided with a regular constitution, with good roads, schools and courts of law, a flourishing empire in full working order. Then, when his task was done, Don Luis abdicated. He has now been back for over two years. Everyone remembers the stir caused by his marriage with Florence Lavassar. The controversy was renewed, and many of the newspapers clamoured for Arsène Lupin's arrest but what could the authorities do? Although nobody doubted who he really was, although the name of Arsène Lupin and the name of Don Luis Perena consisted of the same letters, and people ended by remarking the coincidence, legally speaking, Arsène Lupin was dead and Don Luis Perena was alive, and there was no possibility of bringing Arsène Lupin back to life or of killing Don Luis Perena. He is today living in the village of Saint-Maclou, among those charming valleys which run down to the Oise. Who does not know his modest little pink-washed house, with its green shutters and its garden filled with bright flowers? People make up parties to go there from Paris on Sundays, in a hope of catching a sight through the elder hedges of the man who was Arsène Lupin, or of meeting him in the village square. He is there, with his hair just touched with grey, his still youthful features, and a young man's bearing. And Florence is there, too, with her pretty figure and the halo of fair hair around her happy face, unclouded by even the shadow of an unpleasant recollection. Very often visitors come and knock at the little wooden gate. They are unfortunate people imploring the master's aid, victims of oppression, weaklings who have gone under in the struggle, reckless persons who have been ruined by their passions. For all these Don Luis is full of pity. He gives them his full attention, the help of his far-seeing advice, his experience, his strength, and even his time, disappearing for days and weeks to fight the good fight once more and sometimes also it is an emissary from the prefect's office or some subordinate of the police who comes to submit a complex case to his judgment. Here again Don Luis applies the whole of his wonderful mind to the business. 
in addition to this in addition to his old books on ethics and philosophy to which he has returned with such pleasure he cultivates his garden he dotes on his flowers he is proud of them he takes prizes at the shows and the success is still remembered of the treble carnation streaked red and yellow which he exhibited as the arsene carnation but he works hardest at certain large flowers that blossom in summer during july and the first half of august they fill two-thirds of his lawn and all the borders of his kitchen garden beautiful decorative plants standing erect like flagstaffs they proudly raise their spiky heads of all colors blue violet mauve pink white they are lupins and include every variety crookshanks lupin the two-colored lupin the scented lupin and the last to appear lupin's lupin they are all there resplendent in serried ranks like an army of soldiers each striving to outstrip the others and to hold up the thickest and gaudiest spike to the sun they are all there and at the entrance to the walk that leads to their motley beds is a streamer with this device taken from an exquisite sonnet of jose maria de heredia and in my kitchen garden lupins grow you will say that this is a confession but why not in the evening when a few privileged neighbors meet at his house the justice of the peace the notary major comte d'astrignac who has also gone to live at saint maclou don luis is not afraid to speak of arsene lupin i used to see a great deal of him he says he was not a bad man i will not go so far as to compare him with the seven sages or even to hold him up as an example to future generations but still we must judge him with a certain indulgence he did a vast amount of good and a moderate amount of harm those who suffered through him deserved what they got and fate would have punished them sooner or later if he had not forestalled her between a lupin who selected his victims among the ruck of wicked rich men and some big company promoter who deliberately ruins numbers of poor people would you hesitate for a moment does not lupin come out best and on the other hand what a host of good actions what countless proofs of disinterested generosity a burglar i admit it a swindler i don't deny it he was all that but he was something more than that and while he amused the gallery with his skill and ingenuity he roused the general enthusiasm in other ways people laughed at his practical jokes but they loved his pluck his courage his adventurous spirit his contempt for danger his shrewd insight his unfailing good humor his reckless energy all qualities that stood out at a period when the most active virtues of our race had reached their zenith the period of the motor-car and the aeroplane one day he said as a joke i should like my epitaph to read here lies arsene lupin adventurer that was quite correct he was a master of adventure and if the spirit of adventure led him too often to put his hand in other people's pockets it also led him to battlefields where it gives those who are worthy opportunity to fight and win titles of distinction which are not within reach of all it was there that he gained his it is there that you should see him at work spending his strength braving death and defying destiny and it is because of this that you must forgive him even if he did sometimes get the better of a commissary of police or steal the watch of an examining magistrate let us show some indulgence to our professors of energy and nodding his head don luis concludes then you see he had another virtue which is not to be despised it is a virtue for which we should be grateful to him in these grey days of ours he knew how to smile end of chapter twenty one end of the teeth of the tiger by maurice leblanc